Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ben Carter, Senior Litigation and Advocacy Counsel at the Kentucky Equal Justice Center. We will discuss his work on Medicaid, voting rights, and tenants' rights, especially during the current pandemic. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to doing this for a long time. I'm just sorry we can't have this conversation in person over a beer or something as opposed to uh, over the internet. I think one day we will get back to IRL living, um, but for the time being, it's it's nice to talk and hopefully we can talk again some other time uh, and update listeners with what else is going on at Kentucky Equal Justice Center. Awesome. Yes, I, I, I could not agree more. Uh, let's let's put a pin in it. Um, and so maybe you can start off then by telling uh, the listeners a little bit about what the Kentucky Equal Justice Center is and, and what it does. Sure. Uh, KEJC is a nonprofit law firm and advocacy organization in, in Kentucky. And to understand the work that KEJC does, you sort of have to back up and understand the work that um, civil legal aid organizations do because we, our work is sort of defined by the work that they don't do. So civil legal aid organizations in Kentucky, there are four, um, four agencies or firms that get funding from the federal government to uh, do all sorts of uh, legal work for people who cannot afford to hire private lawyers. So if you need a domestic violence order or a divorce, if you're facing eviction or foreclosure, if you're being harassed by a debt collector, there are four organizations in Kentucky um, that provide that that work. Legal Aid Society in Louisville and surrounding counties, Legal Aid of the Bluegrass in Lexington and surrounding counties, uh, the Appalachian Research and Defense Fund in Eastern and Southern Kentucky, and then there's Kentucky Legal Aid out in Western Kentucky. And for a long time, KEJC um, existed to sort of convene those uh, organizations and provide training and education and best practices to the four different organizations. So we were a training and and education organization from our founding uh, 40 years ago. And then, you know, what, gosh, 25 years ago when the Republicans with Newt Gingrich took over uh, the Congress, they instituted additional restrictions on the kind of work that legal aid organizations could do. And um, that includes most profoundly or, or the parts that are affected the most is if you accept money from the Legal Services Corporation, you're not allowed to lobby policymakers, whether it's the federal government, state government, local government. You can't advocate for policy changes or rule changes, regulation changes that affect your clients in poverty. You also can't do class action work. Kentucky Equal Justice Center does um, the class actions that Legal Service Corporation funded organizations can't do in Kentucky. And then an additional area that we're active in is legal services corporation funded um, law firms are not allowed to represent undocumented people. And so we um, run the Maxwell Street Legal Clinic there in, in Lexington where Brian is and, um, and provide immigration help to people who are 
undocumented or trying to get citizenship. If the Kentucky Equal Justice Center isn't getting its funding from uh, the Legal Services Corporation, where does the funding come from? I mean, how is it able to do this kind of ag- advocacy work? It's It's got to be expensive, I imagine. We, um, there's no better value for, um, for your donation dollars, in my opinion, than um, KEJC, because dollar for dollar, we achieve like pretty profound results. And I say that as a person who has been working there for a year and a half of its 40-year history. So when I say we, I mean the people that came before me. Um, but but yeah, we have a budget of a little less than a million dollars. And we recently received a, a pretty big grant from the federal government, not the Legal Services Corporation, but um, but another grant from the federal government that doesn't come with the same restrictions to do uh, Victims of Crime Act work at our Maxwell Street Legal Clinic. So that it enabled us to hire a couple more advocates over there. And that, gosh, that's a $250,000 grant. So um, you can imagine what a profound difference that made in our budget in terms of expanding our capacity over there. But our, our funding comes from basically two or three different sources. We get um, we get some funding each year, a non-trivial amount of funding from the legal aid organizations to do um, the training and education work that KEJC has done for four decades now. So we run four different task forces um, four times a year across the state for legal aid organizations on workers' rights, on um, consumer and housing issues, on public health and public benefits. And then um, the the final one is family law, which of course is a big issue that all four legal aid organizations deal with on a daily basis. So um, so we're running those training and education programs. And in, in this time of um, COVID-19, that's only gonna become more necessary because you know things are changing on a daily, if not hourly basis. I mean, we're on webinars now where people are updating the information that they gave 30 minutes ago because Congress passed a law and, and the rules have changed, you know, on, on unemployment insurance, for example. So, um, so that's one piece of our funding, Brian. And then the other, um, the other big chunk is grant funded. We don't get a ton of money from individual donations and, um, our budget does not include any any money coming in for attorney's fees. So whenever we are able to recover money for attorney's fees, uh, we get we get a chance to do something new and different with that money. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Um, well, so maybe then you could talk a little bit about your own role there. Do you have a portfolio that kind of covers the range of the different activities that KEJC does, or do you focus on particular subject matter areas or something? Yeah. Before coming to KEJC, I was in private practice. I had a solo practice and a small firm. I had um, one one associate and uh, for a time being a paralegal as well. But I focused on consumer issues primarily in that, in that firm, Ben Carter Law. And, and so I had a lot of experience doing that work um, before coming to KEJC and came to KEJC with an idea of recovering attorney's fees and slowly building out 
our and expanding our capacity to do litigation at KEJC by by recovering attorneys' fees in debt collection cases and landlord abuse cases and um, uh, foreclosures and things like that. So um, that was that's sort of my strong suit. But over the last eighteen months or so, you know, when I came to KEJC, we had a piece of litigation already filed with our co-counsel of Southern Poverty Law Center and National Health Law Program um, of national importance. And so I had to get up to speed really quickly on Medicaid work requirements and uh, public benefits law more generally, because we're we're the organization that's lobbying in Frankfurt to expand access to SNAP, to rescind the restrictions we have in Kentucky on um people with felony convictions in their past being able to get food stamps. I had to I had to sort of take a crash course on public benefits, including Medicaid, including SNAP, including WIC and all of the other public benefits programs. So um, we have a health law fellow. Her name is Betsy Stone, and she has taken a lot of the work around keeping up with the nuances of Medicaid from me. But as senior litigation and advocacy counsel, like it, it's sort of my job to know a little bit about a lot of different things, which suits my personality as well. Mile wide and an inch deep, probably. So how detractors would describe it. <laughs> well, so Ben, maybe you could then give listeners a similar kind of crash course in the litigation that you all are pursuing Right now, what's what's the nature of this litigation and advocacy work around Medicaid, and what are you trying to accomplish with it? Right. When I came on board, Anne Marie Reagan, my predecessor, had filed a lawsuit with the Southern Poverty Law Center and National Health Law Program that challenged the federal government's approval of um, Kentucky's proposal to require people who get their health insurance through Medicaid to meet what they were calling community engagement requirements. So by the time I came on board, um, Anne-Marie and our co-counsel had already gotten a favorable um, decision from the district court in Washington, D.C. that they they sued in. Structurally, I'm sure your listeners will, will get into sort of the jurisdictional and party piece of this, but, you know, because because Alex Azar approved the work requirement uh, proposal that Matt Bevan's administration submitted, we sued the Secretary for Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C. Our feeling is, you know, states can submit whatever crazy kind of programs they want. The, the injury only occurs really when, um, when the federal government approves that that crazy idea, right? And so, you know, I want to be real clear here. I, I hopped on a train that was headed downhill um, and and got to got to sort of disembark when it reached the station as though I had been on it the whole time. But but our co-counsel at Southern Poverty Law Center and National Health Law Program, along with our previous health law fellow, Kara Stewart and Amory Reagan, did all the work. I mean, not all the work, but functionally, a ton of work was done before I ever got on board. And so um, basically what we did was find 15 plaintiffs who were going to have a hard time meeting those community engagement requirements. 
um, 20 hours a week of volunteer work or um, paid work or looking for work and and sued on behalf of those 15 Kentuckians. The, the ironic or, you know, tragic part of this notion of imposing work requirements on people who um, get their health insurance through Medicaid is that it really puts the cart before the horse, in my opinion. Our experience is that when people get health insurance, they get healthier and they go back to work um, and they work as much as they can, as much as their bodies will allow. We have um, plaintiffs who were so disabled that they couldn't work at all. And once they got the surgery that they needed, or they got the anti-arthritis medications that they needed, they were able to go back to work for 10, 12, 15 hours um, a week. And, um, and, and, and yet were not going or had not heard whether they were going to get a waiver of the work requirement uh, because of disability or, or infirmity. And, and we're going to have a hard time meeting it. So, um, so the district court, um, Governor Bevan resubmitted the proposal. Uh, the Secretary for Health and Human Services, um, after losing once at the D.C. Uh, district court, um, reviewed Matt Bevan's proposal again and wrote sort of a, what they considered to be a more responsive um, reflection on whether or not work requirements were um, allowed or complied with Medicaid's core objectives. You know, the statutory language in the Medicaid statute says the purpose of Medicaid is to furnish medical assistance to people who are too poor to, to afford medical care. And so the question of whether you can limit Medicaid based on whether somebody you know, meet some sort of community engagement requirement is really an inquiry into whether or not the secretary abused, in this case, his discretion in approving a plan that was outside of the bounds of the core purposes of the statute. So the district court and then ultimately the Court of Appeals at, at the D.C. Circuit Court had to um, had to sort of analyze whether what was the purpose of Medicaid and is a work requirement sort of core to or compatible with the core objectives of Medicaid and, and twice at the district court level um, and then once now at the court of appeals level and in a companion case out of Arkansas, um, courts have said in, in this case, the secretary acted arbitrarily and capriciously with um, when when he approved these work requirement programs, so it, they didn't say that you could never have work requirements. These these judges didn't, but I think it's going to be very challenging for courts for um, future secretaries of health and human services and future states to propose limiting Medicaid access based on community engagement requirements in a way that doesn't run afoul of this. Um, these rulings. Mm. Well, so, I mean, just to follow up on that a little bit, I mean, you know, these requirements sound kind of, kind of stupid, cruel, and arbitrary, but that of course is not usually any limitation on government action. 
Um, what was the reason that the courts gave for saying that these particular limitations in practice were were incompatible with with Medicaid? And do you see any way for potentially states to get around these rulings? In other words, is this a pretty do you see this as being a pretty strong limitation on the ability to sort of come up with alternative justifications or, or, you know, is, is there a way that states might be able to get around it? Yeah. So in, in governor Bevin's proposal, um, they estimated that over the course of five years of this, this program, uh, the equivalent of 95,000 people would lose Medicaid, um, in Kentucky. So, um, and it's a little bit wonky in, in how they got to that, but essentially it was, they estimated the number of, uh, the decline in months of coverage that the Medicaid program would be offering. But if you divide months of coverage by, by 12, it, it, you get how many people are going to lose Medicaid essentially. But they estimated that 95,000 people would lose Medicaid. That 95,000 is, is presuming that they lose Medicaid for 12 months out of the year. But we know that there are a lot of people who would lose Medicaid and then get on Medicaid again. So if if really what you're looking at is a situation where people have Medicaid for six months out of the year and they don't have six months don't have it for six months out of the year, well then you're looking at a situation where um where what a hundred and ninety thousand Kentuckians are losing health insurance for a certain amount of time, right? Um, so, so within the state's own proposal, we knew that we were looking at a substantial decline in Medicaid coverage in Kentucky. And so, so if the statute's only stated purpose is to provide health insurance or to provide medical assistance to people who don't have access to health health care otherwise, then then approving a plan that strips health insurance from people is arbitrary and capricious. That's the basic, you know, nutshell of these cases is, you know, the objective of Medicaid is to provide medical assistance. And here you have proposed a program that will will at minimum have 95,000 people losing coverage. To put that into context, Brian, about 450,000 people got Medicaid through Medicaid expansion. So you're looking at roughly a quarter, you know, 22% of all people who got Medicaid through Medicaid expansion losing coverage if, um, if this law goes into effect, right? I've got the, I was able to pull up the language um, for the Court of Appeals case. And the Court of Appeals case only applies in the Arkansas case because um, by the time the Court of Appeals ruled, Kentucky had elected um, Governor Bashir by a 5,000 vote margin. And he had, you know, essentially written to Secretary of Health and Human Services and said, you know, about that work requirement plan that Kentucky was pursuing, like, we're not pursuing that anymore. Um, so, so we were dismissed from the appeal, but the, the last paragraph before the conclusion of the, of the, uh, of the opinion, the 19-page opinion, 
these three justices, or excuse me, judges at the D.C. Court of Appeals, you know, um, the person who wrote this, I think, was a Reagan appointee, said, um, importantly, the secretary disregarded this statutory purpose in his analysis. While we have held it is not arbitrary or capricious to prioritize one statutorily identified objective over another, it is an entirely different matter to pr- prioritize non-statutory objectives to the exclusion of the statutory purpose. So here, essentially, the federal government was saying, well, we've got to be careful with the dollars. And also part of the purpose of Medicaid is to make people healthier and to transition them onto private insurance. And these work requirement um, plans are, are part of that broader goal. And they, they essentially adopted the district court's reasoning um, that those were not actually purposes of, of Medicaid and you prioritize those purposes over the the one single um, purpose that Medicaid uh, has articulated, that Congress articulated for Medicaid, which is furnishing medical assistance to people in poverty. So um, it's it's very easy to make these cases very complicated. The Administrative Procedures Act is um, obviously, um, there are lots of zigs and zags through all of that, but when it comes right down to it, what the court's saw were plans to make it harder for people to get health insurance. And that runs contrary to the purpose of Medicaid. Wow. Yeah. That's a really succinct way of putting it. Thanks, Ben. Um, So I understand that you're also doing a lot of work in relation to to voting rights. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, um, especially in relation to like the voting rights of people who have been convicted of felonies. Sure. Um, you know, KEJC um, has has historical roots with um, the legal aid organizations that I've already described. When I came to KEJC, I sort of identified for the board a couple of other areas of l- law that affect people in poverty that um, the KE that the legal aid organizations because of their restrictions, don't get to participate in that I I feel are core to KEJC's broader mission to advocate on behalf of people in poverty. And and those are shortly voting rights slash democracy defense and um, the civil intersections uh, or ramifications of having contact with the criminal justice system. So um, so those are areas that I'm interested in KEJC expanding into and helping other advocates in the state um, with additional, you know, brain cells working on these issues. So, so the felon disenfranchisement case, um, we're co-counseling with the Fair Election Center in in Washington D.C. KEJC as an organization is extremely small. We have half of our people working at the Maxwell Street Legal Clinic and direct services to people um, on on their immigration issues. Uh, that looks a lot like a nonprofit law firm with, you know, high volumes of intake and and um, serving a lot of a lot of different people with um, civil civil needs. The other half of KEJC is our um, executive director and outreach coordinator a food justice fellow who's working on expanding SNAP programs in the state. 
Uh, we have a part-time workers' rights attorney and um, Betsy Stone, who is our health law fellow. I think that pretty much covers us. And so, so much of the work that we do, we have to co-counsel with either private counsel or other nonprofits because, as you can imagine, um, challenging the state's arbitrary practice of uh, re-enfranchising people with felony convictions in their past is a lot of work and it requires a lot of technical um, expertise in areas of law that we don't always have the ability to master on our own. And so uh, working with Southern Poverty Law Center and, and National Health Law Program and uh, Fair Election Center is a great way for Kentucky to benefit from some of these national experts, right? And so that's what we're doing in the, in the challenge to um, Kentucky's felon reenfranchisement program. So essentially, the legal theory there, Brian, is um, Kentucky has a process by which you can apply to um, have your voting rights restored if you are a person with a felony conviction in your past. And, you know, Governor Bevan and Governor Bashir admit that there are no criteria that, that guide their decision-making in whether or not to restore an individual person's voting rights. And we think just like, um, you know, for example, if a city is going to put into, uh, we think it violates the First Amendment. And that's the, the theory of the challenge in this case that's currently pending uh, in the Eastern District of Kentucky. And, and to draw a, a parallel to a area that might make more sense for people or might give people a, a hook to grab onto, if a city is going to um, regulate what kinds of publications can put um, newspaper um, kiosks at the corners of their city streets, it has to publish those rules and they have to be neutral uh, non-arbitrary rules. So, you know, the rules can contain things like no pornography, for example. Um, you can't just have a big stack of um, free porn magazines for people to grab at the corner of, of the street. You have to have a circulation of 10,000 people or more to, um, to have a kiosk or something like that. But the point is, under the First Amendment, if you are going to regulate speech in that way or regulate a, a, a fundamental right, you have to publish and, and be bound by neutral, non-arbitrary rules. And Kentucky has a process. You can fill out an application to have your voting rights restored. And then it is 100 percent up to the governor's discretion who gets their voting rights restored. Right now, the governor doesn't ask, are you a Democrat or Republican? Uh, the governor's form doesn't ask, are you black, white, or brown? Uh, but, but under their theory of the case, the governor could. They say the governor has unfettered discretion. And what we think is, if you're going to have a process to restore people's voting rights, um, that process has to, has to be guided by, um, your discretion has to be guided by neutral published non-arbitrary principles that everybody can understand. Because as you probably know, Brian, it's not easy to get an application together to apply to have your voting rights restored. You have to get documents 
that may be decades old from other states showing when you were incarcerated, what your convictions were for, um, and that you have, in fact, completed your sentence and paid restitution before people even undertake to go through that process and incur those expenses, we think they ought to be able to at least be guided by those published criteria to know whether they're even they even have a chance to to get their voting rights restored. Well, how has the government responded to your litigation? I mean, are they sticking to the idea that it's okay for the governor to just have sort of unmediated discretion or are they pointing to like circumstantial factors like the governor in in practice is considering the right things like what's what's the argument the argument from the Bevan administration and now by adoption the the Bashir administration has been that the governor's powers in this area um, are in the nature of pardon powers and really are not bound by any First Amendment principles. So they they say we have unfettered discretion. Wow. Well, what's the kind of stage of that litigation? Like, wh- where is it at right now? And kind of what do you see in the near future? Sure. We, um, um, Matt Bevan's attorneys filed a motion to dismiss last year. And uh, Judge Caldwell issued like a one-page motion or order overruling the motion to dismiss, citing the um, the order essentially said, I don't have it in front of me, but said citing the significant importance uh, of this litigation, this ought to be decided at the motion for summary judgment level. And, um, and then in conference, the parties... Uh, we have we have agreed essentially that there are no issues of of material fact, and um, so the judge did not grant any um, discovery. So we resubmitted similar, not identical motions for summary judgment, and we're just waiting for a decision. Wow. Well, good luck. It sounds like an important case. Um, I, I wonder, Ben, if you could also talk a little bit about tenants' rights and evictions and the work that you and KGC have been doing in that area? Because I know you have a long history doing that kind of work. And it seems like something that's going to be especially salient in the near future, uh, sadly, because so many people are struggling to, you know, maintain an income, what with the current pandemic and, you know, businesses closing down and so on. Yeah, I'm really concerned about what, um, as everybody is, right, but what the economic fallout, the second and third order sort of reverberations of the necessary, you know, um, social distancing that we're doing right now is going to have on on the people that KEJC and our legal aid partners serve. Because, you know, I, I started out my legal career functionally as a foreclosure defense attorney in Louisville during the foreclosure crisis. And, you know, at any one time had 70 different homeowners in various stages of loan modification applications or litigation um, to try to save their home, bankruptcies, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I grew up with a certain amount of privilege. And by certain amount, I mean, fill it all the way, fill the bucket all the way up. 
and have it overflow with privilege. That's the amount that I grew up with. And I, I grew up with this notion that um, this confidence that adults were taking care of things, right? Because the adults in my life were, for the most part, taking care of things. And and so when the foreclosure crisis hit, I, I think I still expected, for example, the Obama administration's responses to the foreclosure crisis to be um, appropriate in both scope and breadth um, uh, to the to the problem, and it just wasn't. I mean, what we got from the federal government, from the court system, from the from local governments was five percent of what homeowners needed, and you know, will will the broader um, deeper problems with the current pandemic require a more robust, like broader UBI kind of relief that um, um, universal basic income for people who are not into UBI uh, work. But will it, the fact that this is affecting the middle class and, you know, high income earners and all of that stuff um, mean that we will get broader relief or not? I, I, I don't know. I I suspect that whatever relief we get will be a fraction of what our people really need. And, and that's, that just presumes that the, the relief even comes for, for what was just passed last week. You know, it's our understanding that you have to have filed a tax return in 2018 or 2019 in order to um, get the checks that are coming from the government, that if you don't have a bank on file with the IRS, there's going to be additional delay in um, in getting those checks to people. Meanwhile, as you know, to return to the question of renters' rights and and the current crisis, you know, landlords are saying we need our money, and you know they need their money because the bank needs their money, and the bank needs their money because the investors who invested in the you know residential mortgage-backed securities um, expect to get their money from the from the mortgage servicers. Um, and so, so we have a, a situation where people need the money now and they're not going to get the money now. I got an email late last week asking, what does the governor's suspension of evictions mean for, um, for tenants? And what does it mean specifically for people who are undocumented? We have landlords who are threatening to call ICE if, if our people don't pay rent on time. And so for people in Kentucky who don't know and out of Kentucky who also don't know, you know, at least two out of the three of our branches of government have responded really well and aggressively to, and appropriately, right? Not aggressively, um, not overly aggressively, but appropriately aggressively um, to the current pandemic, our court system shut down one of the first court systems to end all non-essential hearings. Um, and part of that was we're not going to do any eviction hearings for the time being. Well, we got reports from the media in Louisville that people who already had eviction orders were being set out because that order didn't include a stay on um, executing on on previously adjudicated evictions, right? 
So that's a problem. And so then the governor came in last week and issued a suspension of evictions. And so specifically that order said, you know, any law enforcement personnel is not a, is not to participate in eviction work, essentially. And and it didn't have language for landlords specifically, but if people hear of landlords, you know, doing what we call self-help evictions, which is illegal in Kentucky, if they just go in and, and um, move people's stuff out while they're there or while they're at work or whatever, if they do that, you know, those people need to call an attorney, call legal aid in their area. Um, and we have a blog post up on what, what renters can do at our site, kyequaljustice.org, um, if, they're, if they're being harassed by their landlord in this time. Because the point of the court's stay of eviction hearings, the point of the governor's stay of setouts and evictions more generally, is that it is not safe for people to be moving and milling about right now. And setting people out means that people are in closer quarters than they need to be. And when we have a general, you know, stay at home order, it's going to be nearly impossible for people to find the housing that they need to replace the housing they're being kicked out of. So it's not, this is not, you know, um, socialism, right? This is a public health crisis. This is not a rent strike. This is not anything like that. Our guidance says, you should continue to pay rent if you can. Um, at the office building that I own, I have two residential apartments um, that I rent to people who work in bars and make hats for the Kentucky Derby. Well, guess what? They're not going to be able to pay rent right now. And and so, you know, for them, they have a landlord who is writing the guidance on what landlords and renters need to do. So they're good. But but landlords need to not be need to have some compassion right now. And the conversations that they need to be having is not with their renters about when they're going to pay rent and how they're going to report them to ICE. It's about calling their bank and saying, I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage for the next six months. Let's get it. Let's get on track for me getting you the documents you need to approve me for a forbearance so that everybody can shelter in place, chill out for a while. This is obviously a crisis. And, and you know, um, I know we don't have all day to talk about this, Brian, but I, I would just say, um, you know, a lot of the things that KEJC is advocating for and working on during normal circumstances are, are even better ideas during a pandemic. So expanding medical care and access to medical care to everybody is a good thing to do under normal circumstances. It improves people's lives. It helps them get back to work. It helps them live lives of dignity and, um, and without, with less pain, right? Um, but during a pandemic, it's not just a good idea for that person. It helps everybody stay safer. More protections for renters is a good idea in Kentucky, where we have essentially two different systems of landlord-tenant law, depending on where you live in Kentucky. It's a good idea under normal circumstances. It's essential as a public to keep everyone safe as a public health um, policy during during a pandemic. And so, you know, as awful as 
this pandemic is, it we also have to, as a as a state, I hope, if not a nation, look at what policies can we enact over the next decade to to make us more resilient for the next pandemic, so that people have, you know, forty percent of all Americans don't have four hundred dollars saved up in the bank. What can we do so that people are able to have more savings in in their uh, life, right? Probably raising the minimum wage. Well, the Kentucky General Assembly has set on legislation that would allow local governments to raise the minimum wage. And the Kentucky Supreme Court said that local governments are preempted from raising the minimum wage. That's fundamental. And so, you know, while we're all quarantined in our homes and then when we're able to meet IRL, I think taking a good hard look at what policies will make us more resilient as a state the next time this comes around and really putting all of our shoulders behind those policies over the next, I mean, it's going to take a decade or more to enact those because elections have to happen. Hearts have to change. People have to People have to understand how gated communities don't keep us safe, right? That as inconvenient and frustrating as um, the fact of our mutual uh, fates are, right? The what, what does Martin Luther King Jr. say? We live in a web of mutuality or something like that. that that fact is never more clear than right now. And believe me, I'm not happy about it. I wish that I could just like be on my own, but it's inevitable. It's unavoidable. And um, as frustrating as that is, we need to be working as a state um, to develop policies that comply with that inescapable fact, right? That we're all healthier when we're all healthier. Um, so that's the frustrating thing for me. I'll just, we can turn to COVID-19 real quick and I'll just say, um, the challenging thing for me swaddled in all of my privilege and living in a, uh, comfortable house with a wife that's working full time is that we're at a point now where the work that we need to do to protect renters at KJC is going to require, recruiting pro bono attorneys, working across the state with legal aid attorneys, uh, working with policymakers in the court system to ensure that when these stays of eviction uh, are lifted, we don't have mass evictions in July of this year, right? We cannot avoid, we cannot afford that kind of disruption just as we, you know, are trying to deal with this kind of disruption right now. That kind of disruption in the future um, would be just as tragic and just as dangerous. And so I'm I'm in a situation now where I'm living with a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, I should be working more than I normally work, and I can't work half of what I normally work uh, because our childcare is shut down and my wife is trying to teach classes as a professor at University of Louisville, and we have a two-year-old and a four-year-old who can spend some time in front of the TV all day, but but not not all day, and and we wouldn't want that to happen anyway. And so, um, so yeah, for the first time in a long time, I'm having like work nightmares about 
not delivering on things that are mission critical for us right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm hoping that as a law professor at the University of Kentucky, with a lot of students who I know care about the same issues you've been talking about, we can pitch in and help in in that struggle uh, as the need becomes more and more obvious. Um, so, so, so Ben, in relation to that, um, you wrote something I really liked, which was a kind of imaginary commencement address uh, for law students, kind of talking. My fake. <laughs> I wouldn't call it fake. I mean, it struck me as like really deep, and genuine and profound. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, like, like your thoughts on law school and your advice or thoughts or reflections for law students. People ask me all the time whether they should go to law school or not. And um, I, unfortunately, I'm often in the position of having to ask them whether they can go to law school without taking on hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Um, this this essay that I wrote, um, you know, when did I write this? Six or seven years ago, really grew out of um, oh, even longer than that, 2011. I graduated from law school with almost no debt, Brian, and as a result, I was able to take a job at Legal Aid that a lot of people who did a lot better than me in law school couldn't even afford to apply for. Right. So there's this perverse way in which um, graduating with no debt is is somehow like a, a job advantage because you it, you get to apply for jobs that other people can't even afford to apply for. And and I live every day knowing that that job defending foreclosures at legal aid put me on the path that I'm on right now, which is you know, other than being like a circuit judge in Franklin Circuit Court, I think being senior litigation and advocacy counsel for KEJC is like the best job you could get as a Kentucky lawyer. And so like that path was only available to me because I graduated with very little debt because I started defending foreclosures during the foreclosure crisis and and was able to Travel the state uh, as a nonprofit attorney, training training private attorneys and how to defend foreclosures, talking with judges about foreclosure mediation programs, and all of that was just possible. I was able to develop an expertise in an area of law that other people didn't know about, that there was a sudden appetite for knowledge about, and my private law firm. Uh, came from like the idea for that firm. I never wanted to be in private practice as a solo practitioner. Like, And to be clear, I didn't know what consumer law was when I graduated from law school, Brian. Like, I, I got that job and was set on that path co completely accidentally and only because I didn't have debt. And so I really, I see what happens in law school it's not just that people are people's worldviews are challenged that that they're told that you know their only job is to be a zealous advocate for their client and that they sh that if they're not checking their values at the door 
um, in order to, you know, represent their client zealously, um, they're not doing their job as a lawyer. It's not just sort of the nihilism of that view of the way our justice system works that happens in law school. It's also the financial reality that people have to go pay back massive law school debt. And so if we want people to, I always say like, if you like the kind of work that I'm doing, like imagine what somebody who graduated in the the top 10% of the law school class could have done with all the opportunities that I got. You know, I graduated in the 40th percentile or something like that. Imagine what an actually good law student could have done with all the opportunities that I was able to take advantage of because of my lack of student debt. And so I just really, for me, the pandemic, as awful as it is, is is like also an opportunity for us to reexamine what we're doing as a society and what what it's actually what ends those things are actually serving. And can we jettison some of this stuff? Like I saw a great cartoon. I guess it was a New Yorker of a guy sitting in front of his computer, and he said, Gosh, I guess all of those meetings really could have been emails. Um, and and it just from from handshaking to having meetings when it really could be an email to how we do law school, how we fund law school, whether we make people pass a bar exam if they've already jumped over all the hurdles to apply to law school and pass law school. I hope we can look at some of these traditions and systems and structures that we have in place, not just in the law, obviously, in our public health system. I've already spoken about all of the different policies that that need reexamining in light of um, our poor response to the pandemic. But, you know, why are we making people go to um, polling places in 2020 to cast a vote when Colorado has been doing universal vote by mail for half a decade, five years. I don't know how long they've been doing it, but it's it works. It's secure. It's safe. Why are we continuing to engage in these outdated practices that are not only a public health threat, but aren't as convenient and reduce democratic participation? I mean, the cynic in me says it. we're doing it because it benefits people politically when people don't show up at the polls. But as a society, what can we change in order to um, allow people to to live their their best lives? And I think law school ha- is the law in general is sl- so slow moving, right? I mean, by design, it is a conservative institution. We work, Brian, in the only only industry in America where creative is used as a pejorative. <laughs> And so, like, we have to rethink all of that as far as I'm concerned, or, or we, we should be, because so many of my friends who went into law school hoping to do, do good or work like I get to do, once you get out and you get started and you get an expertise in ERISA plans on behalf of employers or defending workplace discrimination claims for corporations, it's hard. To, to switch up. Not that people don't. Um, and certainly some of the best employee and worker rights attorneys started out working for corporations, right? But, but it's hard, especially when you have kids in school and you need to start saving for college and all that stuff. The, 
if you don't get people on the right path early, um, it makes it hard for people to do the creative work, to develop the expertise that they need. I mean, I made a living for six years as a private practitioner doing doing essentially legal aid work for profit. I think that's the kind of thing that a lot of other lawyers could do if they had an on-ramp to this kind of work early in their careers. And what student loan debt does is blow up any on-ramp that people might have. And so, um, so I think rethinking that and figuring out how we can get people on the right path or on the not right path, but the path that they want to travel, right? For some people, representing organ or corporations or or something like that is going to be what they want to do. More power to them. But but for people who want to practice law in a public interest setting, or for people who can't afford um, attorneys, or in an area that it's not clear how you're going to make money doing it, um, you know, we've got to have better on ramps for that kind of stuff. I hope that answers your question. That was a long way of saying you can read the. Uh, I don't know whether you all do show notes on Ipsy Dixit, but um, but we can link to that in the show notes if you do, or if not, um, just go to bluegrassroots.org and search for fake law school, I guess. <laughs> no, I'll definitely put a link in the liner notes for the show. And I think that was really well said, Ben. So thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you about all the fantastic work you're doing. And uh, I hope we can do a follow-up in the near future. I, I do too. Thanks so much for the work you're doing, Brian, and, and we'll be in touch to recruit all of the uh, law school students we can to help renters. How's that sound? Awesome. Count me in. Okay. My goodness, it's cold this morning. Three sticks of wood in the wood box and no flour in the barrel. I done told George a hundred times to stop trying to gamble. Oh my goodness, there's my rent man now. I don't know what I'm going to do. Bad it need repair. 
okay, you win, pretty baby. You little old fine, cute booger bear. I know something I'd say would move you. Yes, I'm a fool, gon' use me, I don't care. 